0: Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 17, The Fall of Israel In the few short centuries since their founding, the Hebrew kingdoms of Israel and Judah had carved out a prominent place among the states of the Iron Age Near East. Their unique blending of ancient Canaanite culture with the traditions of wandering desert tribes resulted in perpetual tension between the worshippers of Canaanite deities and those of Yahweh, and their alliances and conflicts with neighboring kingdoms often served to bring this issue to the forefront. Whether they had begun their existence as a combined kingdom of greater Israel or been founded separately, both states owed their ongoing existence in large part to the strength of their armies, honed in near-constant conflict against Assyrians, Aramaeans, and, most frequently, each other. Unfortunately, the overwhelming might of the resurgent Neo-Assyrian Empire, particularly in the wake of Tiglis reforms, had permanently changed the regional calculus. Tiglath's recent campaign had left both Hebrew states impoverished and in vassalage. The northern state of Israel had also found itself dismembered, and only escaped the absolute destruction of its capital, Samaria, by installing the pro-Assyrian puppet ruler Hoshea. For five years, while Tiglath-Pileser III campaigned in Babylonia, then held court in the Assyrian capital of Nimrud, Hosea openly played the role of loyal vassal. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, the Israelite king was putting out diplomatic feelers to one of the few regional powers not yet challenged by Assyria, Israel's sometimes ally and sometimes enemy, Egypt. In the biblical record, Israel and Egypt had first formed ties during the reign of King Solomon, who had taken one of the daughters of the pharaoh Siamun for a wife. Decades later, the Libyan pharaoh Shashank had attacked both Judah and Israel in his bid to restore Egyptian control over the Levant. Since the mid-9th century BC, Egypt's main role in the region had been providing periodic support for Syro-Palestinian rebels confronting Neo-Assyrian power, most notably at the Battle of Karkar. Egypt's remoteness and limited Assyrian control over the intervening territories had provided the kingdom with a sense of relative isolation and security. Within this bubble, the turbulent and fractious game of Egyptian power politics continued to play out, in both Upper and Lower Egypt, and across the rival power centers of the Nile Delta. In 740 BC, the long 38-year reign of Sheshank V, last pharaoh of the 22nd or Libyan ruling dynasty, finally came to an end. Upon his death, centralized control of the north disintegrated, and local rulers took power in the delta cities of Sais, Tanis, and Teremu, later known as Leontopolis. Of these rulers, the most notable were Osorkon IV, son of Sheshok V, who continued to rule the East Nile Delta region from Tanis, and Tefnacht, a prince of Sais, who proclaimed himself the great chief of the West. Tefnok's origins are somewhat ambiguous, but it's likely that, contrary to his claim, he was no Libyan chief, but instead came from a hereditary family of priests of Amun. Records show that Tefnakht apparently wielded power over the western delta cities of Sais and Buto even prior to the death of Sheshank V. However, he apparently waited for Sheshank to pass before formally assuming royal title. During the first decade of his reign, Tefnoch devoted much of his time to forging alliances with the other minor kings of the delta, in order to confront a growing threat that had recently arisen to the south. The kingdom of Nubia, also known as Kush, had challenged the southern borders of Egypt virtually since the country's inception. Low-intensity conflict between the two states had been a relative constant across the intervening millennia, as Egypt's sphere of influence fluctuated repeatedly between the first and fourth cataracts of the Nile. During one era of Egyptian ascendancy, in the late 15th century BC, the pharaoh Thutmose III had established Egyptian control as far as the fourth cataract. It was there that he had founded the provincial capital of Napata, near the great rock of Jebel Barkal, as the southern boundary of the Egyptian New Kingdom. A cult center to Amun was soon established at Jebel Barkal, and over the succeeding centuries, a powerful Nubian priesthood arose around the cult. As Egyptian power became diminished and fractured in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse, Egyptian rulers were seldom able to exert influence south of the first cataract. Beyond this, a new and more powerful Nubian kingdom was forged by the brother kings Alara and Kashta, high priests of Amun who had leveraged their influence into positions of leadership. Alara, the first Nubian priest-king to enter the historical record, unified all of Upper Nubia, from the city of Meroe northward to the Third Cataract, and established the city of Napata as the religious capital of the kingdom. King Alara supposedly enjoyed a particularly long reign, and later became a deeply revered figure in Nubian culture, considered central to the foundation myth of the Kushite kingdom. But it was his brother and successor, King Kashta, who began the process of extending Kushite power northward into Egypt proper. Following the death of the pharaoh Osorkon III in 772 BC, his son Takelot III had succeeded him to the throne at Heracleopolis Magna near Thebes. Officially, the pharaohs of the 23rd ruling dynasty still exercised control over all the lands of Middle and Upper Egypt, but practically, they felt it wise to accommodate the growing power of Nubia rather than risk a direct confrontation. This accommodation initially took the form of installing the daughter of the Nubian king, Amenirdis, as the successor to the divine adoratress of Amun at Thebes, a position currently held by Osorkon's daughter and Takalot's sister, Shepenupet. Having successfully inserted his family into the Theban power structure, King Kashta next began a deliberate process of projecting Nubian power into Upper Egypt constructing a series of Kushite military garrisons between Elephantine and Thebes. Apparently, this program met with little opposition from the pharaoh the III. Perhaps Nubian military power was already too great to resist, or perhaps the pharaoh made a more personal deal for his family's safety and well-being. Whatever the reason, over a relatively brief period, King Kashta successfully completed a peaceful takeover of the territories of Upper Egypt, the first Nubian ruler to do so. The power of the former 23rd dynasty was subsumed, though its members, including Tekalot III, his brother and successor, Rudamun, and their descendants, continued to enjoy a high social status in Thebes, and were buried with great honors when they passed. Under the rule of King Kashta, the native population of the southern kingdom of Napata underwent a deliberate process of Egyptianization, adopting Egyptian traditions, religion, and culture, including the construction of pyramids for royal burials, replacing the previous use of earthen mounds. King Kashta also left his mark on his new northern territories, erecting a stele at Elephantine, at the local temple of the god Khnum, attesting to his control over the region. Upon his death in 752 BC, he was succeeded by his son Pieh, also known as Pianki, who declared himself the pharaoh Pieh and formally inaugurated the 25th Egyptian ruling dynasty. With the Kushite hold on Upper Egypt secure, PA spent the first two decades of his reign methodically extending Nubian dominion into Lower Egypt. It was in response to PA's program for Egyptian reunification under Nubian auspices that King Tefnacht of Saïs had formed his coalition of northern kings. Around 730 BC, they took their first steps toward open confrontation with the Nubian pharaoh, moving south from the delta. Tefnok's northern armies first captured the symbolic former capital of Memphis. Next on their agenda was the important Middle Egyptian city of Khmun, later known as Hermopolis Magna. At the time, the city was under the rule of King Nimlot, who had declared himself a vassal of King Pi, but Tefnok was somehow able to persuade the ruler to defect to his side. With this bloodless coup achieved, Tefnok's armies moved onward toward their greatest challenge— the conquest of Heracleopolis Magna, the capital of Upper Egypt. The forces of the local king, Pefjaubast managed to blunt the initial assault, and Tefnak proceeded to surround and besiege the city. Pefjaubast and his Nubian commanders immediately appealed to Pieh for help. Receiving the news in his capital of Napata, the pharaoh immediately assembled a large army, offered sacrifices to the god Amun, and set sail for the north. Whether Tefnoc's army was outmanned, outmaneuvered, or both, the resulting battle was a complete victory for P.A. Like an irresistible wave, the Nubian army proceeded to drive Tefnoc's forces northward, first from Heracleopolis, then from Hermopolis, which fell to P.A.'s army after a five-month siege, and finally from Memphis. Moving into the delta, the Nubian pharaoh demanded and received the submission of most local rulers, including King Eaput II of Leontopolis and King Osorkon IV of Tanis, who were allowed to remain on as vassal governors of their respective cities. King Tefnacht of Sais avoided a similar fate by taking refuge in an island in the delta. Although he refused to pay homage to the Kushite pharaoh, he did send a letter formally conceding military defeat, in other words, acknowledging reality. This was apparently enough for P. A., who sailed his forces southward, first to Thebes and then to Napata. Once there, he recorded a full account of the conflict on a large victory stele in the Temple of Amun at Jebel Barkal. It would be the last time the Nubian pharaoh would ever set foot on Egyptian soil. When not engaged in foreign conflicts, both P. A. and his Kushite successors devoted a great deal of time and effort to the maintenance of the cult of Amun at both Karnak and Jebel Barkal. Successive phases of renovation and expansion eventually resulted in the latter temple becoming a huge southern replica of the former. Upon his death in 721 B.C., Pa was buried in a pyramid field that would also grow to include several later 25th dynasty pharaohs. The pyramids of the Kushite rulers differed from those in northern Egypt by being both much smaller and built at a much higher angle of inclination. While embracing almost all of the old Egyptian burial customs, the Kushite pharaohs also incorporated the Nubian practice of laying the ruler's body on a bed within the tomb and bearing a chariot team of four horses standing upright alongside their former master. In the aftermath of Pa's departure from Lower Egypt, Tefnakht was able to slowly re-establish control over the Western Nile Delta, and eventually proclaimed himself the Pharaoh Shepsesre Tefnakht I, inaugurating the 24th Egyptian ruling dynasty. Perhaps taking their lead from his example, other local princes also resumed acting independently of the Nubian Pharaoh and the practical extent of Kushite control was reduced once again to their vassal kingdom at Heracleopolis Magna. It was during this period that the Israelite king Hoshea had opened up clandestine diplomatic correspondence with the prince of the Nile Delta, seeking to resume friendly relations with an ancient and powerful ally. The Egyptian ruler's name has come down to us as So and was most likely the Tanite king, the IV. The nature of the correspondence is unknown, but the fact that King Hosea felt that an understanding of some sort had been reached can be implied by his next exceedingly dangerous actions. In 727 BC, Tiglath-Pileser III was succeeded to the throne of Assyria by his son, Shalmaneser V, who had previously reigned as governor of Zemira in Phoenicia. The first two years of his reign appear to have been relatively uneventful, with the new king possibly preoccupied with consolidating his hold on the throne. His first crisis emerged in 725 BC, when King Hoshea, secure in his alliance with Egypt, rolled the dice on Israel's future and halted all tribute payments to Assyria. The moment the news reached him, King Shalmaneser immediately ordered Hoshea to report to his palace in Assyria and explain himself. It's not really clear what Hoshea was expecting, but this had to be a pretty predictable response. So the million dollar question is why did he do it? It's not recorded, but certainly possible, that Hoshea was under internal pressures due to the ongoing heavy tribute payments which had also recently brought an end to the Israelite house of Gadi, and felt that the status quo was simply untenable. It's also possible that he had genuine faith that Egyptian war chariots would come rolling up the Levantine coast at the last minute to save the day. If that was really what he was banking on, he was sorely mistaken, if not flat-out delusional. Osorkon's Tanite forces were no match for the armies of Assur, and any last minute pleas for Egyptian aid went unanswered. Hoshea was placed under arrest, either by Assyrian forces or possibly by the Israelites themselves, hoping to restore Assyria's good graces, and carted off to Nimrud. It's safe to assume that the scene in the throne room was, let's say, fairly tense. And it's hard to believe that Hoshea was capable of producing a satisfactory answer to the only relevant question at hand, where is my money? Did he plead for his life? Did he plead for mercy for Israel? The record is silent on the exchange. What is recorded is that immediately after the meeting, King Hoshea of Israel was thrown into an Assyrian prison and Neo-Assyrian forces were dispatched to take the Israelite capital of Samaria. The Assyrian army was initially unable to capture the city, and settled in for a prolonged siege. Everyone within the walls of Samaria knew well the fate of Arpad, only a few short years before, and can only pray that some malady or distraction would force Shalmaneser's armies away from the city walls. For three long years, kingless and without allies, Samaria held out against the siege. But finally. Inevitably, the Israelite capital fell. As a small and temporary consolation, immediately after the victory, King Shalmaneser V suddenly died, and Neo Assyrian forces were recalled to the capital. The Israelites used the reprieve to repair their defenses, tend their wounds, and pray that the royal succession would be a long and messy affair. In this also, they would be sorely disappointed. There are several things you can instantly glean from an Assyrian king who takes the name of Sargon II. The first is that he's pretty sure of himself. After all, the last Mesopotamian ruler to take that name was Sargon of Akkad, who forged the world's first empire some 16 centuries earlier. The second is that his claim to the royal title may be a bit dubious, which is why you use the name Sharukinu, or True King. Sargon claimed to be a member of the Assyrian royal family, the son of Tiglath-Pileser III and brother of Shalmaneser V, to be precise. But similar to Tiglath himself, there is also a strong suspicion that he may have been an usurper, particularly since his later inscriptions rarely refer to his ancestors. A former general, it was Sargon II who had recalled the Assyrian army to the capital to help secure his succession. Once this was accomplished, the new king led them back to Israel to finish what they'd started. In 721 BC, Neo-Assyrian forces again took the city of Samaria, but this time there would be no last-minute reprieve for the Israelites. The fate of Arpad was avoided. The citizens were not slaughtered en masse. Instead, Sargon converted the remaining Israelite territory into the new Assyrian province of Samaria and deported over 27,000 of its inhabitants to northeastern Syria and western Iran. The state of Israel, home of the ten northern tribes, was at an end and would not exist again in any form for another two and a half millennia. Sargon resettled the region with people from other parts of the empire, creating a more varied population that was more compliant to Assyrian rule. The city of Samaria was rebuilt and became the seat of the local Assyrian governor. The area was further developed through the creation of small villages and agricultural estates, and the construction of defensive fortifications along the southern and eastern borders of the province. In contrast, the northern Israelite provinces of Megiddo and Karname were left depopulated and neglected. The next year, Sargon was confronted with another rebellion, this time in Babylonia, when a Chaldean prince named Marduk Apla Adina II claimed a throne that was, technically, now the property of Assyria. What made this revolt even more of a concern was that the Chaldeans had received military backing from a neighboring power that had not been considered a regional threat for centuries, the ancient kingdom of Elam. Four hundred years had passed since Elam had suffered its great defeat at the hands of the Akkadian king Nebuchadnezzar I, who had sacked its capital of Susa and returned the statue of Marduk to the city of Babylon. During this period, Elamite power had rarely extended beyond the plains of Khuzestan, on the western flank of the Zagros Mountains. The highlands of Anshan, also once claimed by Elam, were now home to the Persians, Medes, Manans, and other groups who had recently entered the region. To the west, Elam bordered on the same southern marshes that provided the Chaldeans with their most effective defense against Assyria's armies. These marshes served as a conduit between the two kingdoms, allowing Chaldean rebels to flee into Elamite territory and Elamite armies, often paid by Babylonia, to reinforce Chaldean forces. Internally, Elam's main constant was instability. Various families contended for the throne, often seeking the patronage of neighboring kingdoms to bolster their claims. Local Elamite nobles were known to be both wealthy and powerful, although the basis of their wealth is something of a mystery, and may have derived from control over trade routes. Despite their equally ancient pedigree, the Assyrians held none of the respect for Elam that they did for Babylonia. They were merely another enemy to be crushed, and this first open move to back a Chaldean usurper provided the perfect pretext. In 720 BC, the armies of Sargon II met combined Chaldean and Elamite forces near the Babylonian city of Dare. The Chaldeans were led by their new king, Marduk apla Edina II, and the Elamites by their king, Humban Nikash I. The numbers of opposing forces and the conduct of the battle are unknown, but given the players and stakes, it must have been a bloody and hard-fought affair. While both sides later recorded the outcome as a total victory by their forces, the actual result was more likely a stalemate, with Sargon unable to dislodge the opposing armies and the Chaldeans unable to drive the Assyrians from the rest of Babylonia. In the battle's aftermath, Assyrian hegemony was rolled back to the region north of the city of Babylon, and Sargon soon found himself distracted by other matters. Perhaps struck by a wave of nostalgia, an Aramean coalition had gathered near the city of Karkar to challenge Assyrian power. Sargon easily steamrolled through this retro-rebellion, then wheeled his forces southward to deal with an incursion from a more novel quarter, the Kingdom of Egypt. The pharaoh Pie had died the previous year, and, per Nubian custom, the throne of Napata had passed to his brother, Shabaka. The first item on Shabaka's plate was completing the Nubian takeover of Lower Egypt. In his first year, he led his armies northward into the Nile Delta and conquered all of the local princes, including the pharaoh Bakken Ranef, son of the recently deceased Tefnach I of Saïs. Having accomplished this, and while he was in the general neighborhood, Shabaka apparently decided to test Neo-Assyrian control over the southern Levant. In response to the pharaoh's incursion, Sargon's forces swept down the Mediterranean coast, on the way converting the Philistine kingdom of Gaza into a puppet state and utterly destroying the southernmost Philistine state of Rafa. The two armies met, their first direct confrontation in more than a century, and Sargon's forces emerged victorious, driving the pharaoh's armies back into Sinai. In 717 BC, in a bid to secure important northern trade routes, Sargon led Assyrian forces against the Syro-Hittite city of Carchemish on the upper Euphrates. Soon after taking the city, he led his armies eastward into the Zagros Mountains, where they conquered the Meneans, sacked their capital of Azirtu, and occupied Parsawash, the original home of the Persian tribe, on the shores of Lake Urmia. Sargon also constructed several military bases in the region, including Kar-Nabu, Kar-Sin, and Kar-Ishtar, all named after Babylonian gods, and one, Kar-Sharukin, named after himself, which were then settled with Assyrian subjects. The campaign against the Manayans had been prompted by Urartian interference in their local politics. Despite their crushing defeat at the hands of Tiglath-Pileser III, the northern kingdom was still stirring up trouble in Assyria's backyard. Much like Elam, Assyria had little regard for Arartu, and it only tolerated the state's existence when they believed it to be pacified. In 714 BC, Sargon decided it was time to put a more permanent end to the Arartian problem. As he was probably aware, the Assyrian king had chosen an extremely auspicious time for his assault. While southern Araratu bordered on the ancient civilizations of the Near East, its northern territories were subject to constant invasion by nomadic steppe tribes. No matter how many were conquered, subjugated, and incorporated into the Arartian kingdom, there were always others, even farther to the north, to be tempted by the enormous wealth accumulated by the Aratian kings. The most immediately threatening were the Sumerians, an Iranian or possibly Thracian tribe who had been driven from their homeland, north of the Caucasus Mountains, by a Scythian invasion. Upon Sargon's conquest of Menea, the Sumerians had migrated from the shores of the Black Sea into former Menean territories, possibly with Assyria's blessing, where they posed an even graver threat to Aratu's borders. An Arartian army sent to pacify the tribe had recently been annihilated, and its commanding general taken prisoner. It was on the heels of this defeat that the Arartian king, Rusa I, learned that Neo-Assyrian forces under Sargon II had entered his kingdom from the south. Thirty years had passed since his father, Sarduri II, had suffered humiliating defeat at the hand of Tiglath-Pileser III. Rusa must have known that this time, the very existence of Arartu might be at stake. Sargon later documented the Arartian campaign in both a letter to the god Asur and in the ba-reliefs in his palace of Dar-Sharukin. The reliefs depict the difficulties of the terrain. War chariots had to be dismantled and carried, paths had to be cut through forests, etc., The two armies met in a steep valley east of Lake Urmia, and the outcome, never really in doubt, was a complete rout by Assyrian forces. King Rusa somehow managed to escape, but since the horses of his war chariot had been killed by Assyrian lances, he was forced to ride a mare in order to get away. Apparently this was a super, super embarrassing scenario, and I'm sure the story made the rounds on the Assyrian dinner party circuit. After decimating the Arartian army, Sargon went on the Assyrian equivalent of a nature hike around the shores of Lake Ormia, felling orchards, burning harvests, and generally laying waste to the countryside. He also plundered the wine cellar of the Arartian kings in the royal resort city of Ulhu. Wherever they went, Sargon's armies met virtually no resistance, Having been warned in advance by fire signals, the Arartian population had fled to their heavily defended mountain fortresses in hopes of riding out the invasion. As he crossed the country, Sargon encountered and destroyed over 400 abandoned villages. The Assyrian campaign culminated in the sack of the Great Temple, dedicated to the war god Haldi and his wife Bagbartu, in the Arartian religious capital of Musasir. More than one ton of gold and five tons of silver were seized by the Assyrians—334,000 precious objects in all. Sargon claimed to have lost only one charioteer, two horsemen, and three couriers in the taking of the city, which was annexed to Assyria. King Rusa was said to be so despondent upon hearing on the loss of Musasir that he took his own life with his own sword. His victory complete— Sargon led his armies back to Assyria. In 713 BC, flush with the wealth plundered from Arartu, Sargon commissioned the construction of a new royal capital, north of Nineveh, near the modern village of Khorisbad, named Dur-Sharukin, or House of Sargon. While he remained in Nimrud planning its construction, Sargon sent his armies west to conquer the Syro-Hittite city-states of Kerala, Tabal, and Cilicia. The next year, Neo-Assyrian forces were sent to the Mediterranean coast to put down an uprising by the Philistine city of Ashdod, supported by the Egyptian pharaoh Shabaka and the new Judean king Hezekiah. The revolt was contained, and Ashdod was annexed as an Assyrian province. In 710 BC, with his new capital under construction, Sargon decided it was time to deal with unfinished business in Babylonia two Assyrian armies were dispatched, one to keep Elam and its new king Shudruk-Nahunte II occupied, the second, led by Sargon himself, against Babylon and his Chaldean nemesis Marduk-Apla-Edina II. Sargon laid siege to Babylon and eventually captured the city, but Marduk managed to escape, fleeing to the southern swamps and the protection of his Elamite allies. In victory, Sargon had himself crowned king of Babylonia restoring the dual monarchy instituted by Tiglath. He remained in Babylon for the next three years, which he mainly spent pacifying the Aramaean and Chaldean tribes of the lower Euphrates and securing the area against further Elamite incursions. Sargon's diplomatic overtures also bore fruit. During his first year on the Babylonian throne, the Greek rulers of the copper-rich island of Cyprus, seeing which way the Near Eastern wind was blowing, declared their allegiance to Assyria without a sword being drawn. Next to fall in line were the Phrygians, an Indo-European people who had migrated into Anatolia from Thrace during the Bronze Age collapse and filled the void left by the fall of the Hittite kingdom. Ruling from their capital of Gordium, Phrygian kings had endeavored to maintain good relations with both the Greeks to the west and the Arartians to the east, and had even raided into Assyrian territory in support of Arartu. Now, with Arartian power on the wane and Sumerian incursions on the rise, their latest king, Miti, or Midas, felt it wise to realign his interests, and offered Phrygian submission to Assyria in return for a defensive alliance. Sargon accepted his offer and, combined with his annexation of the Syro-Hittite state of Kamuhu the following year, extended Assyrian dominion over all of Anatolia. In 706 BC, Sargon moved his court from Babylonia to his new, though still incomplete, capital of dur The following year, with the unruly Sumerians rapidly moving from the Asset to the Liability Column, Sargon decided to mount a punitive campaign against their new home. The Neo-Assyrian army won the day, driving the Sumerians back northward, at least for a while. But in the midst of the conflict, Sargon II had fallen, the first Assyrian king to die in battle against a foreign enemy in, well, pretty much forever. It's a testament to the stable empire crafted by Tiglath-Pileser III that this signal blow barely registered, and Sargon's son and designated heir, Sennacherib, transitioned seamlessly to the Assyrian throne. Next episode, we'll catch up with the Phoenicians, Greeks, and Etruscans of the Mediterranean, watch Sennacherib confront the growing challenge of Elamite power, and see the ancient city of Babylon, seat of Mesopotamian civilization for nearly a millennia, brought to the very brink of destruction for its defiance of the Assyrian king. All this next time on The Ancient World.